Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dr. Paul Merrick. Dr. Merrick has had an immeasurable impact on the practice of medicine and the aspiring physicians he has educated throughout his over 30 years as a critical care doctor and professor of medicine. He is a pioneer in the practice of critical care medicine and is responsible for developing several treatment protocols that have been used around the world to save the lives of countless people. Most notably, his revolutionary work in developing the standard of care for the treatment for sepsis and for his outstanding contributions to the successful protocols during the COVID-19 pandemic. His latest work is an extensive review of the evidence on the use of repurposed medications in treating cancer. Using the findings of over 800 peer-reviewed studies, Dr. Merrick and his team developed a monograph that is intended to educate physicians and their patients about the often overlooked role of repurposed medications, supplements, and lifestyle habits have in cancer treatment protocols. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dr. Merrick, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E-Wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Dr. Merrick. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm just so happy to have you on. Oh, sure. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I started hearing you and Dr. Pierre Corey speak during the height of the COVID pandemic. And I kept your protocol on hand and I still have ivermectin, although it, I think it's expired, but um, but I'm so excited to talk to you about your current work. Yeah, it's a little bit of a departure, but I think it's just as important and it's very interesting. And it seems to be somewhat revolutionary actually. Oh, that is so exciting. I mean, I know, you know, I'm a 25 year cancer survivor. I had ovarian cancer when I was just 29 years old. And I just remember feeling that loss of control. Like I just, you know, the doctors told me what I had to do and I did it, you know, and everyone I talk to, I mean, most people I talk to today say the exact same thing. And it sounds like what you're doing is teaching people how they can be equal participants in their health. Would you say that's correct? Much like in COVID, we want to empower patients. And so, you know, the model where 
the oncologist basically dictates the treatment is no longer acceptable. The patient has to be a partner, a co-partner in the treatment plan. The patient must be involved in all treatment decisions and it must be a joint collaborative effort. And so basically what the guidance is, is it empowers patients and hopefully it will then empower the healthcare providers so that they can have a conversation. And I think the ultimate goal is to improve quality of life. That's really what our goal is, is to improve the quality of the patient's life. If we can extend their lifespan, then that's a, that's a secondary bonus. But I think it has to focus on improving the patient's quality of life, making sure that they lead a high quality life. And this is possible, but it has to be a collaborative joint discussion between the patient's healthcare provider and the patient. And the patients can't, can no longer be passive recipients of treatment. They need to actively participate. They need to be informed. They need to be empowered. And so that's what this monograph does, is it empowers patients to take control. Mm, I love that. I love that. And this is exactly what this podcast is about. So I would love you to share, you know, a little more about the monograph and, you know, for everyone who's listening, what are, are, are some of the pointers? What do you recommend people do that one, you know, I think this is for prevention as well, you know, just like you said, quality of life. I mean, if we could prevent cancer, that would be ideal, obviously, but if someone's going through cancer, what, what do you suggest? Yeah. So basically the monograph does deal with prevention. So there are, you know, scientifically well-validated interventions that folks can do to reduce their risk of cancer. And it's not a secret and it's well-published, but it's not well-known. And so many of these interventions clearly that prevent cancer actually have an important role in the treatment of cancer. And so, you know, most people, I think, don't want to get cancer. They, they know someone in the family, they know a relative who has cancer and they know what it does. And so there are simple things you can do. And then obviously there are people who are at a much higher risk of cancer, either because of a family history or a past history, and that these people need to be proactive. And these are really simple things you can do. And it's really a lifestyle change. It's a matter of developing a healthy lifestyle and then adopting some interventions which reduce the risk of getting cancer. And these are really well established. For example, I can tell you about a recent randomized control trial which followed the ivory tower, you know, protocol of being completely randomized interventional study. They looked at three interventions, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, and a home exercise program. And what they showed is the combination of all three reduced the risk of the recipients getting cancer by 60%. Let me say that again, by 60%. And so these are simple interventions that people can do. You know, vitamin D, there's no question, there's a very strong link between vitamin D deficiency and getting cancer. It's, it's well established. This was published in, you know, as back as 2002 in the New England Journal of Medicine, in which the link between vitamin D deficiency and cancer was clearly demonstrated. 
So we've known this for a long time. We know that as you get further from the equator and your vitamin D status goes down, your risk of cancer goes up. It's, 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 the data is just overwhelming. And so, you know, people should just take vitamin D. The other option is to spend, you know, depending on where you live, you know, at least half an hour outdoors in the sunshine every day. That's not practical for most people. There are people that can do this, but otherwise just take, you know, adequate amounts of vitamin D. There's been an assault on vitamin D as there have been on many other supplements. The dose is really important. So you want a dose of at least 5,000 units a day. We would recommend 10,000 units. So 10,000 is actually the, the lowest dose you can use without significant risk of adverse events. And then you should take that with vitamin K2. And, you know, it's very cheap. You, you can get, you know, I bought a year's supply, you know, over the, over the internet of vitamin D3, must be D3, for a whole year, cost me like $15. So we're talking about a really cheap investment. And does that have K2 with it? So the K2 was separate. So you buy the K2 separately and you want the K2. K2 itself prevents cancer and it prevents it, it prevents cardiac disease. It decalcifies the coronary arteries. So you want K2 as well. And so these are cheap, safe. You know, we, we want to make sure that it's accessible to everyone that it's safe because safety is really important. And so these are, you know, really cheap, safe intervention. And then there's omega-3 fatty acids, you know, which are exceedingly, you know, readily available over the counter and quite cheap. And so those form the cornerstone of prevention. But then if you're at a higher risk and there are people who have a family history or previous history, we would recommend green tea extract, which has been proven, overwhelmingly proven to prevent cancer. And then if you are even at a higher risk, there are people that are at higher risk, you know, we would recommend the medication metformin, which is a diabetic medication, but it's been shown in overwhelmingly a number of studies to prevent cancer. So in people who had a really high risk, they may have a strong genetic predisposition, you know, we would perhaps entertain adding metformin. So I think it has to be personalized. It has to be based on um, the person's perceived risk of getting cancer. And so there are things people can actively do um, to prevent cancer. And then obviously there's melatonin, which is such an important hormone. You know, it's not just for sleep. Um, it's, it plays a really important role in preventing cancer. There is actually data, believe it or not, that night shift workers do not have adequate levels of circulating melatonin. So it was first picked up in um, female flight stewards who worked at night in the airlines at a higher risk of breast cancer. And in fact, night shift work is considered a class two carcinogen because of the melatonin levels. So we know low melatonin levels, low vitamin D levels increase your risk of cancer. And so there is simple things you can do to reduce your risk. All right. And you can get tested, correct, to see your levels. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So you can, you know, what we would recommend is a vitamin, depending on your risk, a vitamin D level of at least 50. And so most people's, you know, 
the current recommendations are just not, not acceptable. Uh, you know, they consider a level above 20 is adequate. We would consider that profoundly inadequate. You want a vitamin D level above 50. Um, you know, in people with cancer, we actually push it even higher, 100, 120, 150, which is exceedingly safe. So, you know, vitamin D is really not a vitamin, it's a hormone. Uh, it, it affects, as you know, it affects so many cellular processes, but most importantly, it acts on the immune cells. So one of the, the mechanisms that it prevents cancer is it activates the immune system to kill the cancer cells. So unlike conventional chemo, which wipes out your immunity, vitamin D actually has a really important role in activating the immune system. You know, you made me think about the sun because people are so afraid to go in the sun. You know, they are afraid. Well, maybe they even had melanoma before um, and they feel like, oh, gosh, I, I have to watch the sun. What do you say to, to those people? Yes, that's completely bogus. So firstly, most people who develop melanomas develop in areas that are not sun exposed. Melanomas develop mostly in non sun exposed areas. And so it's likely that it's all the other environmental and dietary factors that have led to the increase in both melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer. There's really, really good data, the use of other carcinogens, cosmetics, washing powders, various other forms of carcinogens that we expose, as well as lifestyle. You know, there's no question that obesity, smoking, uh, insulin resistance. Insulin resistance together with, with obesity is probably one of the most important risk factors for cancer. And then you get processed foods and, you know, the omega-6 fatty acids that are these synthetic oils. There's a direct, direct association between, the, between drinking sugary sodas and cancer. Direct association. So there are many, many other factors that give rise to cancer that are both environmental and lifestyle. And so, you know, there's a study, there are people who sun averse for this reason. And there was a study in Sweden that showed people who sun averse, who avoid the sun, have a much higher risk of dying and a much higher risk of cardiovascular death. So the sun is really very, very good. And so there's nothing better than going for a walk in the sunshine because, you know, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're getting some exercise and you're being exposed to sun. So you want to have enough sunshine just to the point you don't burn. We obviously don't want people to get to burn. That's not the goal. So, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes in the sun just to get adequate vitamin D. You get infrared radiation. You get outdoors and exercise is what, what we recommend. And then obviously putting on sunscreen defeats the whole purpose of the exercise because you don't want to block the UVB rays. The whole point is to, you know, get the UVB rays to make vitamin D and wearing a sunscreen defeats the whole, the whole point of the exercise. I'm so glad you brought this up because I just know so many people who are just slathering on you know, that sunscreen. And I understand if you, you know, are out for like 15, 20 minutes, and then you want to put it on because you're out longer, maybe you're playing tennis or pickleball or something like that. But I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that and, and obviously looking for a non-toxic sunscreen. 
Yeah, so that's important. Yeah, 20, 30 minutes in the sun is fine. If you're going to spend a more prolonged period, then you want to use a safe sun protector. You may maybe want to use a, a hat or a cap and some, some clothing as well. It's just really common kind of sense. If you think of our forefathers, you know, they went hunting and gathering um, outdoors in the sunshine. They didn't wear sunscreen. <laughs> you know, so you want to get back to basics, you know, the way we were we were evolved and we didn't evolve to wear sunscreen and to remain indoors all the time. Exactly. And I just wanted to quickly go back to omega-3s because, you know, people don't know, like, what kind of supplement should I take or am I eating, you know, salmon to get those omega-3s, walnuts, that kind of thing. But as far as supplementation, I was just curious. And, and foods, if there's any any you recommend. Yeah, you know, we recommend a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet, keto diet. And probably the best, one of the best foods is salmon, salmon or sardines. Obviously, you want fresh, not farm-raised, which is really important. Salmon and sardines really have a high concentration of omega-3 fatty acids. But it may be difficult for some people to actually take in enough fatty acids omega-3s through salmon. So that's why, you know, a supplement is really, uh, is a simple thing to do. And you can take it in addition, in addition to the salmon and sardines and other oily fish that you eat. It's just that it may not be possible to get, you know, enough of a dose of omega-3s in the diet, but we certainly recommend a diet with salmon, sardines, and, and uh, oily fish. And it's really important that it's not farm-raised because these fish are fed corn so that they have a much higher concentration of omega-6s rather than omega-3. So it's really important the, the source of the food that you get. Oh, such a good, good point. And, you know, as far as the supplement, I mean, would you say krill oil or just a... Krill oil is fine, but it's obviously much more expensive. You know, just a... You need to look at the dose of DHA and EPA. It seems like EPA, particularly for depression, it's quite interesting that there's a very strong correlation between deficiency of omega-3s and depression. And you need about a gram of EPA a day. And it has really strong antidepressant effects. So you want to look at the concentration, not of the, of the total oil. You want to look at the EPA and the DHA. And you want to make sure that the concentration of those essential lipids is about a gram, because what they often do in the bottle will tell you the total concentration of fish oil rather than the active ingredients, which is the EPA and the DHA. Okay, got it. Got it. That's really helpful. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series 
where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. You know, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the problems you see with conventional treatments, such as chemotherapy and, and radiotherapy? Yeah, so that's a big question. So, you know, basically, we have, I have no conflict of interest. You know, I'm not making money by selling chemotherapy or promoting chemo. But unfortunately, you know, in this country, most oncologists are pure oncologists. Interestingly enough, if you look at Europe, you look at Germany, you look at Switzerland, you look at Asia, many of the oncologists are integrative oncologists by, by actual design. They, they are integrative oncologists. So they integrate the best of conventional orthodox medicine together with supplemental medicine and do what's in the patient's best interest. And so that's interestingly the, the model, you know, particularly in Israel, I watched a documentary that almost all the oncologists in Israel are integrative specialists. And in fact, they do integrative oncology in the hospital setting. It's just part of what they do, which is very different from the situation in the US where these are traditional oncologists, which all they do is give chemotherapy. So chemotherapy has a role, but like everything else in medicine, you know, it's not the answer to everything. And so, you know, what we've done in the monograph is we've grouped cancers according to their degree of chemo responsiveness. So there are some cancers that are highly chemo responsive, such as leukemias, lymphomas, germ cell tumors. These are curable. These are curable cancers with chemo. Yet you get cancers on the other end, such as pancreatic cancer, um, colonic cancer, brain tumors that really do not respond to chemotherapy. And so trying to treat a, trying to cure a patient with chemotherapy who has a chemo non-curable disease is what I would consider malpractice. So that's why it has to be adjusted according to the patient's lifestyle, the patient's wishes, the patient's expectations, and also the, the type of cancer the patient has and the stage. And so, you know, if you're a hammer, the world looks like a nail. And most oncologists will just give chemotherapy. They have very little interest in pursuing other options. One of the most important interventions is diet. And, you know, so, you know, as recently as last week, a patient asked the oncologist, well, what can I eat? He said, well, diet makes no difference. Eat whatever you want. You want to have shakes and chocolates and candies. It makes no difference. And obviously, that's completely and utterly false. And the literature supports that it's false. And the reason is, is that cancer cells are highly dependent on glucose. This is what feeds the cancer cells. So you actually, that's the reason that we really strongly emphasize a ketogenic diet. It deprives the tumor of glucose, which is what it requires 
to thrive. Cancer cells have an absolute requisite for glutamine and for glucose. So if you deprive the cancer cells of these substrates, they die. We are aware of, you know, we are aware of, and although we don't recommend it alone, patients who have breast cancer or brain cancer who actually go into remission just on a ketogenic diet. It's that powerful. And there's really very strong experimental data to support this role. It's known as the Warburg effect. We've known this since 1924, that cancers are highly dependent on glucose. So that's the metabolic component to the therapy. It's metabolic component together with repurposed drugs. So any patient with cancer, even if they're getting conventional chemotherapy, it's absolutely essential that they look at their diet. You know, we would recommend a diet of food. You know, what is food? If it looks like food, it's food. If it comes in a package and has a wrapper and it has a package insert, it's processed foods. So you really want to avoid processed foods. You want to eat real food. It's really important. You want to avoid processed foods. And you want to avoid a high-carbohydrate diet because it just feeds the tumor. It's just common sense. So that's why it's, you know, this is basically based on the best available science. It's a, it's a combined approach of metabolic therapy with dietary control and then the combination of a whole host of repurposed drugs, which have been shown and proven to have anti-cancer activity. I know you mentioned glutamine. And what in the diet has glutamine in it that people should avoid? Yeah, so there's difficult to, glutamine's an amino acid. So it's really, a, you know, you would have to avoid protein to avoid glutamine. But there are certain repurposed drugs which actually act upon the glutamine pathway. One of them, one of them being green tea, the other one being mebendazole, the other one being curcumin. So you, there are supplements which act through the glutaminous glutaminolysis pathway to decrease intracellular glutamine. So the glucose is basically through a ketogenic diet. The glutamine is through a number of these repurposed drugs which act upon the glutamine pathway. So basically they all work synergistically together. Um, so, you know, unlike cancer chemotherapy or radiotherapy, which act really to prevent, the, to, to try and kill rapidly dividing cells. That's the mode of action. Almost all of the repurposed drugs have multiple modes of action, which is really important. They cause apoptosis or cell death of the cancer cell. They act on the tumor microenvironment. They act on angiogenesis. They act on the tumor stem, stem cell. So these drugs have multiple pleiotropic, which means multiple modes of action through which they inhibit cancer cell growth, cancer cell proliferation, and cancer cell spread. So the stem cells, chemotherapy does not do anything for the stem cells, correct? Yes. So this was a new thing to me. I was unaware of the whole stem cell argument. In fact, can conventional chemotherapy and radiotherapy promotes the growth of stem cells. And so it's kind of an absurdity because the, you have to get rid of the stem cells to get rid of the cancer. And so it's like, it's like pruning a tree without dealing with the roots. The roots are the stem cells. 
chemotherapy just prunes the tree, but actually allows the stem cells to proliferate. So you can never get rid of the cancer. You, you, have, to, you have to get rid of the stem cells. And almost all of the repurposed drugs on our list act directly to inhibit the stem cells. So that's why it has to be a multimodal therapy. You know, it's the metabolic therapy, and then it's the repurposed drugs which prevent cell proliferation and act on the tumor microenvironment, and most importantly, act on the stem cells. Okay, very helpful. On my podcast, I did interview Jane McClelland, uh, as well as Dr. Kuhan from Care Oncology. I don't know if you're familiar with Care Oncology, but they do talk about repurposed uh, drugs. So I'm just putting that out there for anyone who wants to hear more about, about all this. Yeah. So, you know, what, Jane, I heard Jane McClellan's interview and it was actually her, I found her interview so powerful that it's actually what led me on this journey because I didn't realize that, you know, we have an interest in repurposed drugs and she obviously highlights the role of repurposed drugs. So her interview was, was really inspirational for me. And then Care Oncology Clinic actually does many of the, they're a little bit more limited in their recommendations, but the drugs that they use are on our top 10 list. So we, we obviously are aware of what they do and, you know, their approach is very similar to ours. I'm not sure that they, that they so vigorously promote the ketogenic kind of a diet, but they do clearly use repurposed drugs that are on our list. Okay, great. Yeah. And I'm going to share this list with the audience. So just so everyone knows, it will be shared. Um, it's comprehensive. It's, it's just amazing. And I just am so impressed with, with your work. And I feel so grateful that you're helping so many, but also helping cancer survivors, because that's near and dear to my heart. You mentioned the metabolic approach. It's interesting because I'm I'm studying under Dr. Nisha Winters, who I'm, I'm sure you know, um, to be a terrain advocate. And, you know, she talks about just what you're saying as far as limiting your carbohydrates, but it's also looking at the terrain, you know, looking at all those things that feed us that maybe don't come on a plate, right? Like our stress and and are we living our purpose and all that. And, and you did mention that because you said, there's not just one thing, one thing to look at. Yes. So that's really important. If you look on our list, number one is metabolic. Well, number one is metabolic. Then two is stress. So there's really good data that stress reduction, reduction in anxiety, um, sleep, that th these factors play an important role. Exercise. There's really good data that people who exercise have a much lower risk of developing recurrences and tumor progression. People who have, you know, six or seven hours of good sleep. Uh, there's really good data on stress reduction and, you know, the use of adaptogens such as ashwagandha. So it's a much more holistic approach, but it has to be based on good science and good data. And so, you know, it's a matter of developing a lifestyle change. This is not a diet. This is a healthy lifestyle change, which promotes the body to heal itself. And so it's stress reduction, it's exercise, it's good sleep, it's a good diet, and then obviously repurpose drugs. So it's a, it's a complete, you know, holistic package 
of science-based interventions. Absolutely. And, you know, do you have any, any examples of, of patients that have done this approach and, and are doing really well? So, I mean, you look at the literature, you know, there are numerous, numerous case reports. So, so, you know, I like to look at the scientific literature. And so there are really, you know, extensive case reports of patients who've adopted this lifestyle. You know, Dr. Dr. Thomas Seafried, who's a pioneer in the metabolic approach to patient, has documented patients with glioblastoma. And, you know, glioblastoma is a terrible tumor who've done really well with a ketogenic diet together with repurposed drugs. And then the Care Oncology Clinic, you know, they, they, they currently have a open label study where they're looking at patients with glioblastoma as well as other tumors. And they've shown a really, you know, significant prolongation of quality life extension. So the literature is actually, you know, the data is there. It's just hidden for, because they don't want us, you know, they don't want people to see it, but the literature is there. There are numerous case reports, there are numerous case series, there are um, longitudinal studies that demonstrate the benefits of this approach. Incredible. And, you know, I was very plant-based um, before I learned about, about this metabolic approach. And I still think, you know, being plant-based is so important, but it's, it, it's, different, right? It's very high fats and very limited carbohydrates. And, you know, there's, there's people, there's influencers that did raw food only. And, you know, so this just for everyone listening, it's just, it's a different approach, but keep an open mind and, and look at the literature, just like you're saying. So, you know, I think that the bottom line is to cut down processed food. So when you look at diet, I think the, you know, we eat too many processed foods, we eat processed carbohydrates, we eat food that has processed omega-6s. And then, you know, whether you adopt a plant-based or a keto diet, I think is less important. You know, you, you need to do what you need to do as long as it's a balanced diet. So if you're a strict vegan, you need to make sure you're getting sufficient minerals, elements, and protein. But I think the most important intervention is to reduce the intake of processed carbohydrates to increase the intake of real food, you know, fruits and vegetables and leafy vegetables, you know, whether you take, you know, I think salmon is really good. The, the uh, aversion against uh, saturated fats is a complete myth. So, you know, eggs are fine. So it really depends upon your, your choice. You know, I think salmon is good. Eggs are good some lean, some steak now and then is okay. But I think it depends upon, you know, your personal preference. But I think within that framework, you really want to have a diet that is based on real food, not processed food. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, because, you know, everything we see today, I just saw the news and they said that, that um, fast food chains are doing great right now. And, you know, I'm guessing a lot of it's because of the economy, but that was just so sad to see. Yeah, unfortunately, what they're selling is not food. It, it cannot be classified as food. It's, it's a synthetic uh, product that people, that to it's toxic. It's a toxic 
synthetic product that people take orally. And it's nothing more than that. It has, they have really minimal nutritional value, particularly the, the sweetened sodas and the, the fryers with all the omega-6 carcinogenic. They, these are carcinogens. People are eating carcinogens. Mm. Yeah. And I think people want convenience, you know, and, and working on your health, it's not always convenient. You, you, you have to work hard. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. You know, it's the simplest thing is to go through the drive through. You don't even have to leave the car. That's how lazy people are. They get no exercise. But you know what? I think no gain, no pain, no gain. So it's not that difficult, actually. You know, you can structure your diet in such a way that it's not too burdensome. You buy real food. And it is a little bit more expensive, but you know what? You save in the long run. Mm, absolutely. So any last thoughts you want to leave with the audience before we get into random round? Yeah. So I think people need to be empowered, whether it be COVID, whether it be depression, whether it be diabetes, or whether it be cancer. Patients need to be empowered. The, the days are gone where doctors act as dictators and, and tell patients the way things should be. Patients need to be informed and they need to be co-managers of their health. They need to take charge. And I think that's number one. Number two, the very simple lifestyle interventions that people can do that can improve the quality of their life and reduce their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, developing diabetes, developing cancer. These are simple interventions. So people can be empowered. Mm, thank you for that. Now, are you ready for some fun? I'm ready for some fun, yeah. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is? Yeah, that's a really good one. Freedom of speech. I think freedom of speak, speech and freedom of conversation and open dialogue is such an important basic human right. And, you know, we've seen what's happened more recently when people are censored. So I think the ability to have a conversation like we're having, even though we may not agree on everything, freedom of speech is such an important freedom. The last show you binged and loved. So that's really interesting. I don't watch TV. And I'll tell you an interesting story. I'm South African. And there's not much that the apartheid regime did that that one can say was good but when i was brought up in south africa the tv was considered the devil's box so i never watched tv as a child we had no exposure to tv and i've subsequently discovered that indeed what we were told about the tv is true it is the devil's box nothing good comes out of the tv oh that's great and that's why you're so smart right <laughs> When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Yeah, that's interesting. You know what I do? I do some introspection and I do some meditation and I realize, you know what? Things aren't as bad as they appear to be. You know, one has to take it easy, reassure oneself, do a little bit of self-reflection. Perspective, right? If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I think there would be many people. I think Albert Einstein, 
I would would be a fascinating person to speak to. I mean, he was so smart. He had so many good ideas. It would be really interesting to have a conversation with him, particularly now in this crazy world of ours. What is your favorite go-to snack? Yes, I don't snack. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to say that. Yeah, so if I have to snack on something, which I don't really, I used to be a, a, a food addict. I used to be a carbohydrate addict. This was before I was reformed. But if I feel like I really got a snack, I have nuts at home. So I'll, I'll take a handful of nuts. So that would be my go-to snack. What is one simple thing that brings you joy? Yeah, I think speaking with people and interacting with people is, is a joyous thing because I think we're all human and just to have a, a wholesome discussion with someone I think is very gratifying. Love that. What is on your nightstand? Yeah, so I have a, um, a clock and I have a red lamp. I make sure that I don't ex- get exposed to blue light or white light at night. So it's called, it's all part of sleep hygiene. So I have a red lamp next to me on my nightstand as well as a clock. So I know how early or late it is. And so just a quick question about that. Do you put that red lamp on like two hours before bed or something like that? So I actually have two red lamps in my room. So it depends on how late it is and if I need light. So I, I, I only use, in my bedroom, I only have red lamps. And so at nighttime, I switch on the red lamp so that uh, it's, there's really good data on how it facilitates high quality sleep, sleep hygiene. So you really want to avoid blue light and white light, you know, in the two, two or three hours before you go to sleep. What is your favorite form of exercise? Yeah. So, you know, it's a good question. I used to go to the gym, but now my favorite exercise is going for a walk in the sunshine. I think it's completely invigorating. And I think it's probably the the healthiest form of exercise. What is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Yeah. So I'm grateful to be able to speak with you. I'm grateful that I I have a roof over my head and that I'm in reasonable health. You know, I think it's the small things in life that are really important. So true. And last, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Yeah. So they can go to our website, flccc.net. So they can go to flccc.net and we have protocols that are available for free download our cancer monograph is available for free download and so if they want to if there are questions you can email questions through the website so that's that's where i am and some somewhat good news is that the cancer monograph is going to be available from amazon.com as both a book and a kindle download so hopefully within the next few weeks they will be available Oh, wonderful. And I will put the link in my show notes as well. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Merrick. This was such a pleasure and I know it's going to help so many people. So thank you. Sure. And, you know, I think people need to take control of their life and be empowered and hopefully we can help them on that journey. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.